Welcome to Marxist Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider or visit www.socialist.net. I thought I'd begin this talk with um, a few words on the current situation in Britain and across the world. So we're over 10 years now since the last global uh, economic crisis of 2007 and 2008. And on the surface, um, it seems like nothing much has changed uh, in society. In Britain, we've had over 10 years of austerity and crisis and economic cuts. Um, and all whilst the 1% in society seem to have vastly increased their wealth um, in the same period. So what is it that has brought about this strange and uh, contradictory state of affairs? Uh, and more importantly, can anything be done about this? Is this normal? Is this natural? Um, people everywhere in society, um, in this country and across the world, they don't fully understand why, but I think there is a great feeling that something is fundamentally wrong in society. Capitalism doesn't work. It isn't providing decent living standards uh, for the vast majority of the world's population. Um, and this inevitably leads people to the ideas of Karl Marx, to the ideas of Marxism. So Marxism is at its root um, a philosophy. It's a way of looking at the world. And Marx used his method, uh, he used this philosophical uh, method to understand capitalism and to understand um, the world. Um, and his conclusions uh, remain as valid today as they were at the time um, of writing which is something that cannot be said for many thinkers uh, from the same period as Marx. Um, so there's a, quite a lot to discover um, and to cover in this, in this session, but hopefully um, I can outline the main features of capitalism as a system and explain how the contradictions that exist within it, that are inherent within the system, um, inevitably lead to crisis. So capitalism um, as a system, as a mode of production, has only really been in existence for a few hundred years which in the total history of civilization and, and humankind is really not a very long time. Um, capitalism developed um, in Europe roughly during the 1600s from the remnants of the previous mode of production, which was feudalism, which at that time uh, was falling apart. Um, and this development, um, as Marx explains, was the natural outcome of the class struggle. So Marx says in the Communist Manifesto that the history of all civilization with the exception of the very primitive stages, um, is the history of class struggle. Now, what did he mean by this? So, an economic class is, um, broadly speaking, defined by your relationship to the means of production, your relationship to the way the necessities of life um, are produced and are distributed. And class society began when human civilization, for the first time, began to produce things beyond what was needed for immediate consumption and survival. Class society began when an economic surplus was created for the first time. And once it was created, it was inevitably controlled by a privileged class in society, a class that did not have to work, um, that merely enjoyed the fruits of other people's uh, labor. And from this point, you had, as Marx explained, a constant struggle between the different classes that existed in society, between the haves and the have-nots, um, broadly speaking, to control the surplus and on a very, very broad, grand scale, effectively to reorganize society in their own interests. Now this struggle, which is the class struggle, that is the motor force of human history. Now the rising capitalist class of the 16th and 17th century in Europe 
Um, what they did was they dis dispossessed the peasants um, of their land um, and of their means of living, and they turned them, they transformed them in a very painful and brutal and violent process into wage laborers. Um, they enclosed the land, they monopolized the means of production, um, and divisions of labor and economies of scale uh, were introduced. So under these uh, methods, you have production taking place um, on a very large scale, in large-scale industries, where only one worker would be, uh, well, one worker would be responsible for one specific part um, of production in a giant uh, factory or collective cell, as opposed to one worker having the skill and the know-how to make um, a chair or a table, for example. The, pr the process is split up uh, and, and divided. So this process that I've outlined uh, very briefly, uh, which is called primitive accumulation, um, laid the foundations for the society that we have today, the capitalist society we have today, where we have socialized production, but the means of production uh, remain in private hands and profit remains in private hands. So under capitalism, the current system, we see society split into two broad camps. You have the bourgeoisie, who own and control the means of production, and the proletariat, the working class, who are propertyless and have no choice but to sell their labor power uh, for a wage in order to survive. If they don't do this, uh, they won't be able to exist. Now, capitalism um, revolutionizes uh, the means of production in order to grow and expand. And this differentiates it from previous modes of production, which did not inherently revolutionize um, the means of production. Capitalism has to grow and it has to expand to continue to exist. It has to constantly um, find new markets and establish new spheres of influence um, across the globe. Now, at the time of uh, writing, uh, at the time of writing the Communist Manifesto, um, capitalism had actually advanced science and technology to a level that was previously deemed um, unimaginable. You know, you read some of um, Marx's quotes from the Communist Manifesto, he's almost <coughs> singing praise about what capitalism has managed to achieve in that period. Uh, and the period uh, prior to him. But the point is that capitalism no longer plays that progressive role in society. It cannot develop the means of production um, any further. And in actual fact, it now exists as a barrier to further economic and social development. So what we're seeing today is an organic crisis of capitalism. And what I mean by organic is that it's a total crisis of the system. It's a historic crisis where capitalism has been, for many decades now, in terminal decline. So the general um, curve of capitalist development over the past few decades, since the end of the post-war boom, which was, by the way, an unprecedented anomaly, and the conditions for that sort of um, boom won't happen again uh, in the future, um, the curve has been downwards. Um, it's been, of, as I mentioned, terminal decline. And the small booms and the small recoveries we've had since the post-war boom have been minor blips, basically, in an overall downward um, trajectory. Um, so booms and slumps, as we all probably are aware, um, are unique aspects of capitalism. They can't be avoided. Um, it's a cycle. But the key point that bourgeois economists miss or, or choose to consciously ignore is that the previous crisis that we had and the current social and political conditions that exist in society um, will determine the nature of the next crisis. Um, Marxism um, does recognize booms and slumps. Marx does talk about this. But again, unlike bourgeois economists, um, Marxism understands the overall curve of development uh, being a downward one. Because the bourgeois economists, they talk about booms and slumps, 
but they say or they imply that you know after every crisis there's a recovery and it suggests that everything returns to equilibrium uh, as if it's exactly the same which of course isn't the case so marxism recognizes the context of each crisis through the overall curve of economic developments and through the overall um, curve of societal developments which includes class struggle politics and all the other things that exist um, in the world and in society so the main point really is that the fundamental problems that caused the 2007 and 2008 crisis haven't been solved and the reality is we haven't actually recovered from that crisis um, either interest rates um, across Europe and across the world have been kept artificially low uh, in an attempt to try and stimulate the economy and for some high net worth individuals in say Switzerland they're actually negative at the moment such as the fear of um, the economy stagnating so we've had quantitative easing which is you know in layman's terms effectively printing money which has had no effect um, on the economies of Europe other than inflating dodgy bank assets property assets and things like this without going into the real um, sectors of the economy um, and of course all of this inflation um, of assets is also being done by the amount of cheap money that's washing around um, due to the low interest rates that have existed for a few years now. Um, you have unemployment um, in Britain and across Europe, which is no longer following a sort of cyclical um, trend, but it's actually a permanent scar that exists on all economies. It's always there, um, and it's always large in, in, in number. Um, and the rest of Europe, um, apart from Britain, is also heading into stagnation um, and into recession. Um, I think it's very clear from the things I've described that this is not an ordinary period um, in the history of, of capitalism. And for the, these reasons, um, I think it's very clear that the next crisis, the next economic crisis which is coming, um, as soon as, say, um, the qu first quarter of next year, some um, bourgeois economists are saying, it will um, be particularly devastating. Um, but of course, fundamentally, underneath all of this, um, the crisis, as it always is under capitalism, in every um, cycle, it's a crisis of overproduction. Capitalism as a system produces um, anarchically. Um, and what I mean by this is that it doesn't consider the natural limits um, of the market. Um, the working class cannot buy back the full value of the commodities that it collectively produces um, across the world. And during a crisis, you have a situation where commerce and trade comes to a standstill. You have investment drying up, credit ceasing, uh, factories and offices closing down, uh, unemployment um, skyrocketing. And the whole of society is thrown backwards um, into stagnation. Now, as I mentioned, each crisis um, is particular to each period, but the fundamental contradictions that leads to the cr each crisis um, remain the same. Um, they are built into the very foundations of the, the capitalist system. Um, and Karl Marx was the first to outline this um, in its totality. So what are the fundamental aspects um, of capitalism? So um, capital um, starts out dialectically. So Marx starts his analysis um, with a philosophical insight, really, because he looks at, as a starting point, the very cell of the capitalist system, which is the commodity. So a commodity is a thing that is produced for exchange on a market. It doesn't have to be tangible, it doesn't have to be physical, but it has to have a use value and an exchange value. So use value is broadly <coughs> defined as something's usefulness. Now, use value is entirely subjective, and it can differ from person to person. It can be physical, um, or it can be a psychological need. 
Um, and of course, use value um, is socially and historically determined as well. So an example of use value is um, companies which spend millions of pounds every year on advertising to try and artificially create a need for something, a use value for it. Um, now exchange value, um, or just shortened, uh, which we refer to as value, um, is objective. Now the value of a commodity is determined by the amount of socially necessary labour that has gone into its production. Um, the amount of abstract general labour that has gone into producing uh, something. Now exchange value, value um, is realised through the process of exchanging something on the market. Um, because it's through the market that the commodity's social quality uh, is expressed. It's expressed as a relationship between the labour of different producers. Now, by socially necessary, uh, what I mean is the average amount of labour used to produce goods under the average conditions and the existing level of technique in that particular sphere of industry. So, for example, um, if a worker takes twice as long to produce something because they're lazy or incompetent, that doesn't result in twice as valuable uh, as a commodity. You know, if I go into the garden and I sort of manipulate a bunch of dirt and mud um, and say, look, I have applied labour to something, it's a commodity, it's not because it's not socially useful, uh, clearly. Um, so the source of all new value um, in the economy is human labour. So a worker's capacity to work, their ability, um, their labour power, is a unique commodity under capitalism in the sense that it is capable of actually replenishing it um, itself. Whereas machines um, and technology, which uh, Marx refers to as dead labour, um, it can't do that. It can't replenish itself. What machines do is they do pass on value to a commodity, yes, but it's only a fixed amount. Because if you think about it, um, a machine or a piece of technology um, will work and it will be um, useful in, uh, in the productive process, but if you leave it alone, it will actually deteriorate over time and it will require the reapplication um, of, uh, of human labour. Um, so that's why a machine can only produce, um, can only apply a fixed amount of labour um, in the productive process. In order to reapply um, labour, you will need the reapplication um, of human labour power to keep that um, machine ad adding value in the productive process. Um, and that's also why under capitalism it's not possible to have um, full automation. Um, because of course, as I mentioned um, just a bit earlier, machines don't produce new value um, in the economy. They only transfer a set amount. Um, and of course, what is exchange value? What is value? It's the amount of socially necessary labour that's gone into producing something. And this is aside from the very obvious fact that if a worker, um, or if the working class as a whole, don't, aren't on employment and don't receive wages, then the commodities can't be bought back uh, by anybody if you have you know, uh, only machines uh, in the productive process. So if I was to summarize um, the problem of capitalism um, in a sentence, it would be that our ability under this system to, uh, our ability and capacity to produce is held back by the mode of production um, itself. Now, the price of a commodity um, is often confused with the value of a commodity, but they are different uh, things. So as I mentioned, the value of a commodity is determined by the amount of socially necessary labour that has gone into it. Um, the market price of that commodity will gravitate around the commodity's value, but it can differ due to things like supply um, and demand. Um, if demand is high and supply is low, prices go up. Uh, and if supply is high and demand low, prices are lowered in order to try and attract uh, buyers. 
So, um, crucially, um, profit in capitalist society is not realized by selling commodities for um, above their value um, or at higher prices. It's actually realized in the production process um, itself, which I'll get onto a bit later. So, this is broadly speaking the law of value when it comes to commodity production. So, this law operates um, under the vast majority of commodities that are produced. Um, but, of course, it implies certain um, rules that are in place. So you have to have unrestrained production, you have to have goods that can be replicated, um, and you have to have um, homogeneity, basically. You need to be able to produce the same thing. Um, now, obviously, I'm sure many of us in the room can think of examples of commodities, things produced in capitalist society, which don't adhere to this rule, or seem like they don't adhere to this rule. For example, fine arts, um, special collector's items, designer goods, um, things like that, where the prices will differ wildly um, compared to the, the natural value of that commodity. But this actually happens for a number of reasons. So as I mentioned earlier with advertising, you have designer brands through advertising and through influence can actually create sort of mini monopolies where they get away with charging really, really high, ridiculous prices and uh, their businesses um, seem to survive. Using rare art as, a, as an example, um, you have you know, a Picasso painting which cannot be reproduced because it's a one-off item and Picasso is obviously dead. So there's no way you can have a, uni um, a replica of that uh, particular uh, commodity. So the prices are massively inflated on the art market. But of course the art market's you know, mere existence is largely due to capitalists trying to invest and trying to preserve their wealth uh, because they don't want to invest in production uh, mainly. Um, but what these examples actually show and what they prove is they prove the existence of the law of value in reverse. Um, because clearly, you know, they exist as anomalies on the fringes of, uh, of production. Because, you know, if you think about it technically, you know, if you are a capitalist, you can charge any price you want on the market for a commodity. You can charge a £1,000 for a tin of beans or whatever. But no one does that. Why don't they do that? Why doesn't everyone try and charge anything they want for commodities? It's because the law of value um, operates um, and it um, asserts itself through the capitalist system and through the force of competition between, between capitalists. Um, now, commodity production is not unique to, to the capitalist system. It did exist beforehand. But under capitalism, what we have is a system where commodity production is dominant and generalized. Um, the production of things for profit and sale on a market completely dominates our society. So under feudalism, um, commodities were produced but what they were, um, what usually happened is that they were either consumed by that own, you know, uh, group or clan or community, um, or they were appropriated directly, basically, um, instead of exchange with other people. And there was no market, uh, so to speak. So Marx starts his analysis in Capital with the commodity first of all because it's a simple model which he can then expand upon <coughs> later, but more crucially is because there's an inherent contradiction and link between its two component parts, the two component parts of a commodity, use value and exchange value. If a commodity has no use value, it can't be sold. If it's not useful, no one's going to buy it. Um, and therefore, if no one buys it, it has no exchange value. Um, so how do you track all the problems and all the contradictions um, of capitalist society, the society, the society that we see um, before us? How do you track it to the commodity on the final analysis? Well, to paraphrase... Um, a Marx quote um, in um, his critique of Hegel's philosophy of law, the exchange of commodities on the market is not merely an economic transaction, 
but it creates a social relationship between people, irrespective of free will. Economic relationships and classes are created through the market, whether we like them or not. So the necessities of life, as I mentioned, are produced as commodities for sale um, by other people. And everyone depends on each other um, through the market. So a social tie is created um, like that. And of course, if you think about it in a, in a literal sense, um, commodities don't take themselves to the market to be sold. It's people at the end of the day. Um, and this is one of, again, one of Marx's great discoveries, and it stems from his dialectical thinking. It stems from him from his understanding of philosophy. So I'd actually urge those of you in the room who would like to understand this topic, economics, a bit further to attend some of the philosophy discussions taking place this week, because they're in interconnected, um, and one will complement um, the other. So Marx saw the relationships and the inter interconnections between um, society and the economy, um, and he asked, he asked, how do we go from this initial contradiction between use value and exchange value to the contradictory and crisis-riddled society that we see today, where you don't have free competition, where you have monopolies, where you have imperialism, where you have all these things that are supposed to work under the capitalist system but result in their opposites? Um, he asked that question, and he answers it. And the reality is that no other economic theory, apart from Marxism, can do this, or even attempts to do this. Um, so now that I've covered the basics um, of a commodity, we can go on to look um, at wages, uh, profit, and capital. So as I mentioned earlier, profit comes from selling commodities at their value. Uh, that's our starting point here. It's actually formed in the production process itself, not the exchange process. Um, and the secret to profit was Marx's big leap forward um, from, the from the classical economists, from your Adam Smith and your David Ricardos that uh, preceded him. Um, and as Marx explained, the secret lies in the difference between labor and labor power. So labor is the act of working itself. It's the actual output um, of a worker, of the working class. Um, labor power represents that worker's ability or capacity to work. So workers don't sell their outputs, their they don't sell their labor to the capitalist. Um, what they sell is their ability um, to work for a certain period of time, whether it's an hour, a day, a month, uh, for example. So Marx discovered that workers are not just consumers in society, but they're sellers. What they sell to the capitalist is their labor power. It's their capacity to work. Um, and labor power, as a commodity, can produce more value than it itself costs. Now, its use value, which is the labor, is greater than its exchange value, which is represented by the wages that um, are paid to the worker. So under capitalism, as I mentioned, workers are forced to sell their labor power for a wage in order to exist. Now, labor power wasn't always sold um, like this in society. Under feudalism, you had a system where, where peasants were not paid wages. Rather, they worked for several days um, on land that was for themselves, and on other days they would work for a period of time uh, on the land of the landlord. There was a physical separation there, and the exploitation was actually um, quite, literal, um, quite literally physically... Um, viewable. Under slavery, you had a scenario where the slaves themselves were treated uh, and traded as a replaceable commodity. The slaves were the means of production themselves. But of course, this isn't the case under um, a system of wage labor, under capitalism. So workers are forced to sell their labor power because they have been divorced from the means of production. They don't control it. They're not connected to it um, anymore. Um, they have no other way of surviving 
other than working for a wage, other than selling their labor power to various capitalists or to one capitalist. So the wage received by the worker um, is, as our starting point, um, the amount of money needed to sustain that worker uh, and to keep them and their family alive so that they can continue to work. So labor power is a commodity, as, as I mentioned earlier. So what is the value of this commodity? Like all other commodities in the capitalist system, it's the amount of socially necessary labor that has gone into producing it. Um, the generalized labor um, needed to maintain um, the worker is represented by the working class as a whole. Again, you know, we're dealing with collective relationships here, not isolated um, individual examples. Um, but crucially, in the course of um, uh, uh, the production process um, and in the course of a working day, a worker is not paid back the full value um, of what they produce. So the working day is made up of two parts. You have the part where the worker produces value to cover their own subsistence um, and the part where surplus value um, is produced. So that is value which is beyond that which uh, is needed to cover the wages, uh, the labor power um, of that worker. So I mentioned that wages are calculated on the basis of what's necessary for the worker's subsistence. But of course, the average wage that exists in society will vary depending on social and historical factors, like supply and demand, for example, um, supply and demand of labor, and of course, the state of the class struggle in that country, uh, in that continent, in that region. And there is nothing at all to stop wages going below subsistence level under capitalism, which is very often the case and pretty much the case now uh, in Britain and, uh, and every other European country. And again, this isn't just subsistence for one worker. It's a social average. It's subsistence for the working class um, as a whole, as a collective. Um, so this is where profit comes from. It comes from surplus labor. So part of the surplus value that is produced in the working day is reinvested into the productive process um, as capital. The rest of it um, is pocketed uh, by the capitalist. Um, now, in the process of growing and expanding to make more profits, the capitalist is forced to either expand the working day um, or to increase productivity within the same amount of working hours in order to produce more um, in the same amount of time. So both these things, expanding the working day and increasing intensity of production, result in further exploitation and pressure um, on the working class. Um, but capitalists can increase productivity with technology and automation. Um, and it was said, actually, uh, by people in the, in the 1950s and so, that because of the advances of science and technology that we'd had in that period, that by the year 2000 we'd all be, you know, um, have the time and freedom to do whatever we wanted, robots would be doing all our jobs, and we'd all be living in some sort of, you know, wonderful utopia. Um, but of course, that clearly hasn't happened, has it? You know? Um, we have a potentially limitless capacity for automation um, and technological application in, in production, but it hasn't happened yet. Why is that the case? Now, there are several reasons for this. So when a capitalist um, invests in technology um, in order to increase productivity, the idea is to sell more commodities at a cheaper price uh, and realize more profits. So all capitalists do this, basically, because they're competing with each other. Um, the market drives them to, to do that. The problem with this, though, is that it actually reduces the need for human labor, which means more unemployment. And if less workers are earning, then, of course, the working class as a whole is even less able to buy back the commodities that are produced. And also, if we look at the actual route of production itself, when you have a situation where more machines and more technology 
um, are introduced <coughs> in order to increase productivity. The amount of socially necessary labor that has gone into the production of that commodity reduces because it's easier to produce when you have technology and automation in that process. So this happens once that technology becomes universal, basically. It becomes a standard in that industry. Um, if you have a situation where a capitalist um, has a unique um, technological application or a bit of um, machinery um, and no one else has it, then that capitalist will make super profits for a certain period of time. But of course it becomes generalized and then it's, um, that advantage is no longer in existence. So basically, when you introduce technology into production, the worker, the human laborer, has to work longer and harder to produce the same amount of value that they used to produce um, because introducing technology has a contradictory effect. Um, it results in the opposite of what it should um, actually achieve. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, um, wages um, can vary depending on social and historical factors. Um, and this will also affect the capitalist sort of drive and intention when it comes to introducing um, automation and technology. When you have a situation where wages are high, there is a drive to increase technology, uh, technology um, and to increase productivity, um, to replace the workers that are demanding such high wages. But when wages are low, like the current period, there's actually no incentive for the capitalists to introduce more technology because they're actually better off um, exploiting cheap labor for their profits. And as well, if we assume for a moment that full automation is attempted by the capitalists uh, under the system, you have to ask the question, where would the new value come from um, in the economy, given that the source of all new value is, of course, human labor power? The answer to that question is that there would be none, basically. Nothing would be produced. Because there's, you know, new, there would be no new value in the economy, given that um, the source of uh, profits is, of course, the exploitation of, of human labor. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you have a situation where machines are called dead labor because they confer a fixed amount of value before they need themselves the reapplication of, of human labor to them. Um, it's only human labor uh, power that can create new value, um, and it's the exploitation of human labor that is the basis for profits um, under capitalism. Um, so, yeah, for these reasons that I mentioned, um, full automation isn't really possible um, under the capitalist system. It's only under socialism where there is no profit and no market, where we can actually introduce full automation, um, have a reduced working week, uh, and have full employment for everyone. So moving on to the role that money plays um, in society. So money is actually a special commodity, which is used to measure the value of other commodities that exist in society. It's a universal equivalent. So money developed historically as commodity production developed uh, and eventually became dominant in society. So as commodity production went from something that was in existence on the fringes of primitive society to something which was internal within a community and eventually external with, through trade um, and export and those sorts of things, there became a necessity to have a universal equivalent um, to measure the abstract general labor that uh, had gone into everything, basically. Um, so the history of money is actually tied to the history of the development of the productive forces. And money actually represents the final alienation um, of the producer uh, from their labor. Um, goods which were previously um, exchanged for other use values, other goods, are, um, are now exchanged for money, which has the sole purpose of being a representation um, of value. Um, if you look in your wallet and you take a £5 note or a £10 note and you read it and you look at the details, 
Um, it's a promise to wealth, but it's also a social relationship which reflects certain social conditions that exist. It's been subject to inflation over the years. Five pounds an hour is very different from five pounds in the 1970s and the 1980s. You go to another country, uh, and there's a completely different monetary system with different values uh, behind it. So in our society, money has several purposes. Um, it's a means of exchange. It stores value. Um, and it's a means of payment. Uh, and it forms the basis of the credit system, loans, that sort of thing. Buy now, uh, promise to pay later. Um, now, credit has a particular role in the capitalist society um, as well. Because what credit does is it expands the market beyond its natural capacity by removing the physical barrier of actually needing to have money um, or goods on you. It allows for that transaction to take place um, regardless. Now, the financial system, the modern financial system that we have, has taken this concept, you know, buy now, pay later, in effect, to a whole new level. Because it allows money to be exchanged electronically before transactions have even taken place or before goods have even been produced uh, in many cases. Um, and it's this which makes the crisis, um, the fundamental cause of crisis, overproduction, uh, to be so much worse because the whole credit system grinds to a halt uh, once loans get called in, once confidence drops in the market, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, so as I mentioned, money started um, initially in, in commodity form, uh, basically. You had a situation where you'd have things like gold and silver, um, which became the money commodity accidentally because of certain physical properties that they had. Taking gold, for example, it's hard-wearing and it's durable. Um, it's difficult to find, it's difficult to produce. Um, and so you have a high amount of value that is represented in a very small um, physical amount. Now, eventually, um, you have paper money, um, which is invented, to, again, to remove the physical barrier of having to transport all these gold coins or whatever commodities um, around. And eventually after that, you have electronic payments, which remove um, the transactions from the physical realm uh, altogether. So the exchange value and the use value of money itself is now completely divorced uh, and abstract. So much so that it's no longer really correct to see sort of money as a commodity um, in its own right, like a gold coin was a commodity in its own right, for example. It's taken on a different uh, character under capitalism. Um, but of course, the point about money is that all of this develops naturally um, in class society under capitalism to allow for the expansion of trade um, and industry. It was a natural development and the natural conclusion of a society where we meet each other as private owners of commodities um, for sale. As to whether we'd have money under a socialist system, um, under socialism there would be no market. Uh, there'd be no system of commodity production and exchange and there'd be no um, private exchange for profit. So eventually, um, exchange value as a concept uh, would disappear, and use value uh, would be seen socially, as, in, uh, as opposed to being seen privately, like a private subjective um, thing that I mentioned earlier. And eventually, um, money as we know it now, uh, under the current system, would no longer be necessary. Um, because money at the moment represents um, exchange value, socially necessary labor time. But under socialism, it can actually denote um, for example, entitlement to a common store of wealth. It can be linked to working need. Uh, it can be linked to need and working ability. Um, and you have physical tokens, like the ones mentioned by Karl Marx in his uh, book Critique of the Gotha Program, can be replaced very easily by electronic ones. Uh, I think we have a system and a society now where we have um, the capacity to have all of these things implemented very easily. I don't think it would be very difficult. Um, but again, it's important to understand that money itself 
um, is not a problem, is not the problem of capitalist society. It developed historically. It wasn't artificially um, imposed upon us. Uh, it wasn't imposed upon society. So if you, for example, removed um, the monetary system um, from the capitalist system, hypothetically, then the only thing that it would achieve is that um, another type of universal equivalent would be created, um, whatever that might be. Um, and the inequality that exists on the capitalist society would just be reflected in different ways. Uh, it would be reflected in, to a different um, money commodity um, as opposed to being reflected in, in monetary terms. So it's only a socialist revolution uh, and a planned economy which can really tackle the root causes um, of inequality. Uh, and of course, once that happens, the nature of money um, itself uh, will change. Um, so as I've mentioned um, throughout this speech, capitalism is a system of inherent contradictions. Now, all of these contradictions on the final analysis can be traced back to the initial contradiction between a commodity's use value and exchange value. The unique thing about capitalist crisis is for the first time in human history, we have a crisis not of scarcity or of underproduction, but a crisis of overproduction. In the past, you'd had situations where civilizations would be threatened by droughts, by famine, uh, by shortages, by things like that. But now you have a situation where there's actually too much produced. There are too many commodities uh, on the market. And the market cannot absorb what is produced, both consumer and capital goods. So Malthus's idea of overpopulation, there being sort of too many mouths to feed, has become somewhat popular um, again these days. Um, but of course, there are plenty of statistics um, and figures to prove that we have enough um, capacity to produce food to feed the world 10 times over. Um, the problem is that it's all produced on the basis of profit. It's all in private hands. Now, um, Keynes's um, theory of underconsumption, as uh, his theory of crisis, um, is correct in that it looks part of the problem. You know, he correctly identifies that the working class cannot buy back the totality of goods um, that are produced under capitalism. But his solution for this problem is actually for governments to effectively artificially increase demand through public investment and through stimulus packages, um, by debt financing, basically, through credit. Um, but the very starting point of Keynes's outlook, uh, and the outlook of many bourgeois economists, is that they, they don't really ask the real uh, questions that exist. You know, um, It misses the point, because the root cause of capitalist inequality comes from production itself. It doesn't come from distribution. It doesn't come from consumption. So the bourgeois economists fail to ask the questions, why are people unable to uh, buy back these goods? Why cannot they afford anything that is produced in society? Why are businesses not investing? Why does crisis happen in the first place? They don't ask these, uh, these questions. Um, so the surplus value that is um, extracted from the working class during production uh, results in an inherent inability to consume everything that is produced. And in any case, Underconsumption in class society has always existed in one form or another, you know, and it's in effect it's a permanent feature of capitalism now, whether there is a boom or slump. Um, so as I mentioned um, earlier, the market um, is complete anarchy. They have no consideration for the natural limits um, of the market, um, and the market struggles to keep up with the constantly expanding production uh, of the capitalist um, companies. So. The idea that every seller finds a buyer under capitalism is, again, you know, massively incorrect. You have a situation where capitalists produce in order to make profits. They produce before buyers even exist. They, they produce in anticipation of finding uh, buyers later. 
they worry about that problem uh, when they get to it. Now, competition drives um, capitalists forward to increase productivity with more exploitation of labor or with more introduction um, of technology and automation and all of these things. Um, now, unemployment increases as a result of that, and the wages of the working class as a whole are pushed down as they're forced to compete with each other, which further eats into the working class's ability to pay for goods and services. Now, the 2007 uh, crisis was known as the credit crunch, uh, which were a situation where massively inflated uh, financial system came crashing down, basically. Um, now, Marx said that the ultimate dream of capitalism was to make money from money and to not even bother with the hassle of physical production and labor. So the size and the scale of the financial system that we have today effectively represents that dream, that capitalist um, dream. It's an attempt to hoover up profits that are made in other productive sectors of the economy and to find ways of making money, skimming off the top, without investing in production itself. Um, now, the expansion of the credit system is ultimately a way to delay and to temporarily overcome the crisis of overproduction. You have a system where cheap credit floods um, the entire economy, you have inflated prices, the market expands artificially, but eventually someone has to pay for all this. And the collapse of the credit system exposed the underlying weaknesses of the economy, and it revealed the crisis of overproduction that um, underlies everything. Now, the world crisis of the 1970s was overcome with massive attacks on the working class, and you had revolutionary situations springing up all across the globe. Now, the financial sector and the drive towards it for the capitalists is also an attempt to avoid a situation like that again, because the capitalists are, you know, they are aware of the implications of class struggle. Now, there are countervailing tendencies to crisis as well. You have world trade, you have foreign markets, uh, which act as pressure valves for commodities and capital, which are exported abroad beyond the natural uh, boundaries of the, of the national markets. Um, you have super profits with the exploitation of colonial labor. Um, and you have increased productivity, which actually reduces the price of commodities and capital goods. Um, and all of this... Um, oh, sorry, what was I saying? Oh, war as well is, plays a big part in restoring capitalist profitability. You know, in World War One and World War Two, um, basically war and destruction uh, and a destruction of the productive forces was the only way out for the capitalist system in order to rebuild um, from scratch. And of course, the price paid for that, for the continuation of capitalism, was tens of millions of people dead. Um, now, creative destruction is that, that term uh, in bourgeois economists, where you have whole industries going into decline, whole regions left permanently scarred. It's not just war uh, where destruction exists in the economy. Um, and all of this is because of the anarchy of the market. It's the invisible hand um, operating. Uh, I've run out of time, so I'm going to um, sum up. But um, let's see. Yeah, the, the contradictions that exist um, and that lead to crisis within capitalism are inherent uh, within the system. You have crisis that occurs as a natural product of capitalism, but of course there's no final crisis of capitalism. The system has to be consciously overthrown uh, by the working class. Now, you can say one good thing about capitalism, which that its historical justification is that it has laid the foundations for a higher stage of society through its development of the productive forces. That's its real um, justification. You know, we have the science and technology to end climate change, to feed the world ten times over, to produce uh, and to provide a good living standard for pretty much every human being um, on the planet. But we simply don't because of private property and the need uh, for profit. Um, now, Engels said that socialism means the leap of humanity from the realm of necessity to the realm of freedom. 
And this is ultimately what Marxism um, is all about. It's why we study Marx's economics, in order to understand how we change society and how to build a fairer uh, and more equitable society, which is free from the brutality and the injustice of capitalism. So I would urge any of you today who haven't already done so, please, if you agree with the, what I've said, if you have a burning sense of hatred for the injustices of capitalism as a system, please do join Socialist Appeal, join the International Marxist Tendency, and help us fight for a world socialist revolution and the emancipation of the human race. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Marxist Voice, brought to you by Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. Subscribe or download the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit www.socialist.net for all the latest news, analysis and Marxist ideas.